0: see, your family, especially during the time of Jesus, um, they really defined who you were. People took great pride or great shame in who their ancestors were and what they did. See, if you did something great or someone in your family did something great, you were able to celebrate for generations to come. But if you or someone in your family did something really wrong, your entire family had to deal with that embarrassment or shame for a really, really long time. People would either accept you or write you off completely based on who your family was. You can show the pic- picture, Ashley. So. Um, It'll be there sometime. All right, so this girl's really interesting. Um, uh, she's related to my wife. She's like her great, great, great something. Her name is Mary Surratt. She was the first woman, woman, first, yeah, uh, executed in the United States. Um, she was hung. For, she, she helped assassinate Abraham Lincoln. Pretty interesting, right? I know, right? Kind of interesting. Now, the greatest detail, you can take the picture down. And the greatest detail about that fact is Chelsea doesn't have to live in fear or shame because of that. I mean, there's probably a little sense of shame, right? Like, oh, you're the strat, like Mary the strat. She's like, no, right? But I mean, but like, you get it, right? She doesn't have to live in fear because of that detail. See, in America, your ancestors don't write your story. You do. They don't write your future. You do. But this is very different than Jesus' day. See, in Jesus' culture, knowing your ancestors was a big, big, big deal, and so that's what I want to talk about tonight. I was like, we kind of talk about the Christmas story. I want to set up our Christmas series that we're going to be doing next week. It's going to be great. I'm going to do one week. Cody's going to do one week, and Doyle's going to come by and do one week, and I'm really excited for it. Today, I want to look at the family of Christ, the history of the people in Jesus' family. And just a quick fun fact, I guess, is the Christmas story is found in two books of the Bible, the book of Matthew and the book of Luke. Now, if you're new to this whole church thing and things like that, the Bible is a really fascinating, interesting, but yet can kind of be a pretty complex book. Let me simplify it just for you a little. Um, if you are new to church, uh, start in the, in the Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament. New Testament is 27 books, and the first four books. And the, new, uh, the Gospels are really interesting. They're the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. They record everything Jesus ever did, really mostly anything he ever said. And so you want to start there. Now, the Christmas story is found in two books, Matthew and Luke. And each book is written to a different audience for a specific reason. Luke was, uh, was um Really written for the purpose of showing that Jesus was a man, that he came from Adam, that in 100% in every way he was a man, that he came from Adam, that he was the perfect man. Matthew shows that Jesus came from Abraham through David, and that demonstrates that he was the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. That's important. We're going to talk about it today. Today we're going to start in the book of Matthew. Next week I'm going to talk about um, the book of Luke. But Matthew kind of says, hey listen, before you jump into my book and you hear about Jesus and stuff like that, I want you to kind of pump the brakes. I want you to kind of pause, and there's some details that you really need to understand if you're going to call yourself a Christian, if you're going to follow Christ, some things that are really essential for you. But if you're anything like me, you've opened up your Bible to the book of Matthew chapter 1, and you went, nah, and you skipped right over something that was really, really important. But we have to ask the question, why? Why did Matthew put what we're going to talk about today in there? Well, he starts with something called the genealogy. And the genealogy is just just a long list of some crazy names that are pretty complex. It's the history of the people in Jesus' family, and it goes all the way back to 42 generations. 42 generations, you couldn't go past three. Some of you couldn't go back two, right? That's crazy. It went all the way back 42, hundreds and hundreds of years to where Jesus came from, going backwards. And so we're gonna like, try to read it together. Uh, give me some slack, though. These names are super gnarly. It says this. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, It's kind of a cool name. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David the king. We're not near done. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. You don't know. Abijah, the father of Asaph. Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joam, Joam the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham; and Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. We're almost there. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatel, Sheatel the father of Zerubbabel. That's another great name. Zerubbabel and the father of Abud. Abud, the father of Elakim. Elakim, the father of Azur. Azur, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father. Wait, did I read that? What? Akim, the father of Elud. Elud, the father of Elazar. Elazar, the father of Mahan or Manhattan or something like that. And Mahan, the father of Jacob. And here we go, guys. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom was Jesus, was born, who was called. Christ, we did it, guys. All right, let me pray. No I'm just Uh All right, so an American, twenty-first century, a Westerner—you go like this. You go, she, she uh, Matthew two, right? That's what ends up happening, right? Because the whole thing confuses you. It confuses me. We can barely pronounce these things together. But we need to remember that Matthew was writing to a very specific audience. More importantly, he was writing to a Jewish audience, and. Jewish people, the Israelites, they took detailed genealogies, really, really important. And the reason they did it because it proved what bloodline you were for, from. And that was really important for two reasons. We're going to talk about those two reasons today. The first was it proved that Jesus was really Jewish. Now, that's really important. Jesus was an Arab. And it was really important to prove that because of Old Testament messianic prophecies, he had to be related to Abraham. And he would be from the line of David. Second reason is what we're probably going to spend more time talking about today, though. Second reason is what's really, really important to you and really, really important to me is in the genealogy, Matthew writes down people who just you wouldn't really want brought up in your family, you know what I'm saying? Like, you'd be like, no, nah, they're not really, like, in my, in my family, right? So, like, for my wife, it's Mary Surratt. Right? She's like, no, nah, I don't think I'm related to her in some way, but she really is, right? We all kind of have that one person, right, in our family that, if you'd be honest, you kind of just wish wasn't there, you know what I'm saying? Thanksgiving or whatever holidays you got to get together, it's that one person, you're just like, you're way awkward, you know what I'm saying? Like, I kind of wish you don't exist, right? Is just me. I just have these people, my sister. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I understand. Right, it's so that one aunt. You say aunt or aunt? By the way, someone um, or or, their, or your grandparents or whatever it was, and they get too much to drink and they start getting weird, right? Have you ever been, have you ever been sitting with like a grandparent who's like 608, and uh, they had too much to drink, or for you it's another family member and you sit with them and they had a few drinks past being buzzed or whatever, and you start to find out like they're, they're super crazy or like way racist or something. You're like, Grandma. How do, how do we get here? Like, Grandma, you're way racist. Like, what's going on, right? I know you were born in like the 1800s. But things have changed, Grandma. Like, it's just me. Well, anyways, Jesus had those types of people in his family as well, and Matthew put those people in there because he wanted to communicate a truth to us, and to find that truth, I want to highlight a few people in the genealogy of Jesus. So on the surface, this just looks like a really long list of really difficult names to say, but if you look closer, you're gonna notice five names that are completely 100% different from the rest, and they're different because they belong to women. Now hear me out. We have a list of 42 generations, and almost all, if you were to look at ancient Jewish um, genealogies, none of them mention women. So we have to ask the question, why are these women in Jesus's genealogy? Back in in the day, uh, women were really kind of an afterthought, and never mentioned, but Matthew includes these women to make a point. So we're going to take a quick look at four of the five women to talk about it. So verse 3 mentions a woman named Tamar. This story is like Jerry Springer. You guys ever used to like hang out at home like when you were sick and like Jerry Springer would come up and you're like, this is crazy. Right? You're like, fight, fight. You're like, you're like seven. You're like yelling at a TV. So like literally this story is like 100% Jerry Springer, Dr. Phil. It's crazy. Right? So if I tell you the whole story, I'll probably get fired. It's like rated R or X or something like that. But I'll give you a little bit of it. So it's found in Genesis 38. Go home and read it tonight. It's crazy. Um, so Tamar married uh, one of Judah's sons. Um, his name was Er, And Ur ended up dying. And there was this weird kind of law back in the day that comes from the book of Deuteronomy that um, uh, if, if the husband died, it was the, uh, the family of the husband's uh, responsibility to provide a new husband for the wife whose husband had died. So Ur's family was responsible for getting Tamar a new husband, if that makes sense. Now, normally how it would work is it would go to the little brother, which is pretty weird, right? So it's like, all right, you died, and it's like eight-year-old whoever, like you're now married to, right? That's how, that's how it worked, which is kind of a really weird Law. So what ends up happening is Tamar uh, married her, her brother-in-law, but he ended up dying too. So eventually she went to her father-in-law, Judah, looking for her third husband. He told her to wait a few years until the little baby boy got old enough to get married. So a few years went by and she was waiting for a husband and she's still waiting to have a baby. That's important to know because um, eventually the baby would, would grow up and was supposed to take care of the mother. That's how things worked. So her father-in-law was just kind of ignoring her request. Yeah, great, whatever, we'll find you somebody someday, look at Tinder, whatever. I don't know, right? And, and so she decides, she decides, oh, here's my master plan. I'm going to dress up as a prostitute. I'm going to seduce my father-in-law, Judah. I'm going to make him have sex with me, and I'm going to have his child. That's exactly what happens. She dresses up as a prostitute, covers her head, yada, yada. They're doing their thing. She rips it off. She's like, ah! He's like, what? Right? It's crazy. Right? That baby ends up, turns out to be Jesus' great, great, great times like 38 or whatever grandfather. Now, verse 5 mentions a girl named Rahab. Now, Rahab didn't just dress as a prostitute. Your girl was a prostitute. Right? And so, (laughs) when she realized that God's people, and this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible, uh, she actually um, uh, this is found in the book of Joshua, um, and I love this story, um, not that she was a prostitute, this part of the story, um, (laughs) so when she realized that God's people were going to conquer, uh, Jericho, she decided to kind of leave her former life of a working girl, and, uh, and follow the God that the Israelites served, who was called Yahweh, and so what I love about this story, she ended up hiding some spies and things like that, and, um, helped the Israelites kind of conquer the city of Jericho, which was going to be the promised land for the Israelites, for the Jewish people. And what I love about this story is despite her crazy past, God used her greatly. And she became Jesus' great, 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 great grandmother. Now, verse 5 also uh, talks about a girl named Ruth. Ruth actually has a book of the Bible named after her. It's entitled, you get it, Ruth. So Ruth was a Moabite, and God's people hated the Moabites. And the Moabites hated God's people. Now, the Moabites were really, really crazy people. In fact, in Deuteronomy 23, 3, it says this, That if anyone had a child with a Moabite, they would not be allowed to worship with the rest of God's people for ten generations. I mean, think about that. These people were so, so bad that if your great, great, great times ten grandfather was one of them, you wouldn't even be allowed to go to church with your neighbors or your friends. That's how bad these people were. They were really infamous for incest and human sacrifice. And this is the family that Ruth came from. But she turned from that life and she trusted in the one true God and eventually became King David's grandmother and Jesus' great, 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 grandmother as well. Now, in verse 6, it mentions a girl named Bathsheba. She's probably the most well-known and famous uh, of the women in Jesus' is, um, kind of family history. I want you to quickly imagine this with me. So restless one night, David is pacing on the roof of his palace and where he has this kind of sky-high view of, of the city below, of all the houses and gardens and everything else. And, and he's walking around. He glances out to his right, let's say, and he sees this girl, and she's bathing on top of her roof. And he grabs he whistles one of his servants, and he says, who is she? And, and, and the servant says, I have no idea. And he goes, get her for me. And the servant's like, all right. He's like, you know what I mean? Get her. All right. So he gets her, and, uh, and, and they start, they do something sketchy. They do, you know, they do what they do. And and of the up happening is uh, about a month later, um, she comes knocking on the door. And she says, hey, uh, King David, I'm pregnant. And he's like, all right, like, cool. And he's like, but like, uh, you don't know this, but like, I am the wife of your best friend. And he's like, dang. And he's like, this is crazy. And not even that he's at war right now for you. His name's Uriah. He's like one of your great generals. And so what ends up happening is David ends up freaking out. And so he comes up with this, this plan and uh, to bring Uriah home for a day, sends word um, and to bring Uriah home so that he's going to sleep with his wife, right? After all, they're married. That's what other people do, right? So he's going to figure it out. If I bring her home, they're going to sleep together all is well. He's going to think the child is his. What ends up happening is Uriah comes home, he's such an honorable man, he says, no, I'm not going to go home and sleep with my wife, I'll sleep on the palace floor. David goes, frick, now what am I going to do? So he comes up with another plan, he says, I'm going to get him so wasted, I'm going to throw the biggest party that this place has ever seen, it's going to be bumping, as the kids say, it's going to be lit, it's going to be awesome, and he's going to get so plastered, he's going to go home, and he's going to do things with his wife, and then he's going to think that the child is his. What ends up happening is Uriah gets so plastered, he just passes out on the floor, And everyone sees him passed out on the floor. So everyone knows he didn't go home. And so he's like, what do I do now? And so he thinks, this is the only way. I have to come up with a plan to kill him. So he writes a letter to the head general, hands it to Uriah and says, hey, I need you to give this to the head general. So Uriah goes back to war, hands it to the head general. Head general opens it up and it says, send Uriah to the front lines to be killed. And he's like, do you know what's on here? And Uriah goes, no. And he goes, all right. He's like, hey, you gotta go to the front lines. You're gonna be in charge of that squad or whatever. Uriah ends up going and that day he ends up dying and all is well. At least that's what he thinks. He ends, up, he ends up marrying Bathsheba, Bathsheba gives birth to the child, and everything he thinks is easy-peasy, lemon-squeezy, right? But at this point, the prophet Nathan is sent by God to accuse David. He says that he has come to inform the king of this really great injustice of the land, that a rich man was stealing from a poor man, and is using what he stole to use like it's his own. So furious what King David hears, he says this. It's like a famous line. As God lives, the one who has done this deserves death. Responds, Nathan, he says, you are that man. David says, I'm caught. He says, and this is a famous line. He says, I've sinned before God. And so we ask forgiveness, and God gives it to him, but he's still punished. God ends up taking the life of that first, first uh, baby that Bathsheba gave birth to. But years later, you probably know um, the child that uh, they had together, named Solomon. You probably know him as King Solomon. So now at this point of the story, you're probably asking, all right, what? Like, how does this make sense with the whole Christmas thing and things? How's this setting us up for next week and things like that? We, here's the point. Matthew 1 is like Jesus' introduction into the, into the world, right? It's like, hey, my name is Jesus. Um, I come from like a really long list of really messed up people who did a lot of messed up things, and I'm supposed to save you from all your messed up stuff. And you're like, huh? Right? And so like my great-great-great-grandmother, pretends she was a prostitute, so to, to seduce her own father-in-law, or my great-great-great-grandmother actually was a prostitute. Or my great-great-great-grandparents had an affair. They tried to cover it up and by killing one of his best friends and, and ended up killing up a bunch of other people as well. And see, here's the point. God looks at this crazy, messed-up family and says, I'm going to bring my son, the savior of mankind, through this family, along with a, a other handful of liars and cheats and murders and prostitutes. Not the Hallmark family, but this family. So you and I have to ask the question, why? Well, why would God choose this family? Because the messed up people just aren't a part of the story. They are the point of the story. Which makes you and I the point of the Christmas story as well. That we are messed up sinners too. The Christmas really story is about two, story and seasons, really about two things. The first is that Jesus came from sinners to save sinners, to rescue us from a sinking ship of sin that we could not get ourselves off of. And the second one is this. The second part about Christmas is it's The story of God telling you and me, no matter who you come from and what you have done, God can do some incredible things with your life. That that God can write a new story from your mistakes because he's the author of life. That no matter your past, God can rewrite your future. I love this quote from a spoken word I heard a while ago. It says this. It says, my God is a garbage man. He turned my trash into a testimony and my mess into a message. You know, thinking about this last week and studying for this, this message it means so much to me. I don't know if it's because I've always felt, I've always struggled with feelings of like feeling inadequate, you know, and I didn't really feel like I was going to amount to much in my life. You know, I, being an idiot in high school, you know, getting myself into trouble, doing stupid things, I always felt kind of excluded from church and excluded from God. And if God had a plan for my life, I was really far from it and there was no way I was ever going to find it because I was so far off the path. And I've shared the story before with you that I always felt like I grew up inadequate because I always felt like I grew up in the shadow of my twin sister. Right? She was always someone that I just viewed as as had more gifts than me, who was who was better than me. Right. And I've said this before, right? She's had a 4.0 all the way since like kindergarten, all through college and everything else, right? And I was struggling to pass math or whatever. And she was the captain of her teams and I never made the team. She was the good looking one. She was the popular one. (laughs) To be honest with you I felt like I always got the short stick of the DNA, you know what I'm saying? Like God was like, oh there's another person in there. Like, you know, like like trying to you know give me some extra like oh yeah. (laughs) You know, <laughs> and so man, you go into our rooms as a kid right? and like, her, her, her walls were like littered with trophies both academic and um, athletic and you walk into mine it was just bare white wall actually they were green <laughs> right? and I always, just, I always felt like yeah I just grew up in the shadow of her. that was inadequate God couldn't use someone like me and so I might as well just be a screw up you know, one of the most amazing things about the Christmas story to me is that God is unimpressed by our resumes that God scoffs at our attempt we make to prove our worthiness to him See, the Christmas story is all about God using a family of mess-ups to make a masterpiece, see, to fix the greatest problem in all of eternity, sin, by a pretty jacked-up family. So I I guess that's just a different way to say this, that God can use you. More importantly, God wants to use you. See, none of Jesus' ancestors thought their names would be recorded next to the most important name in human history. None of them thought God was going to use them in some way to save mankind. Could it be possible that God has a plan for your life? And it is to do some incredible, eternity-changing things. See, the Christmas story shows that God can use ordinary people like you, ordinary people like me, to do extraordinary things if we surrender our lives to him. As we end today, I want to leave you with this encouragement. No matter what you've done, where you've gone, and who have you become, you still have a place in the heart of God. And you still have a purpose in the place that God has for you. See, I guess I just want you to know this, that you are here for a reason, and God has an incredible plan for your life. Let me pray for us. Father, I, as I reflect on the Christmas story, I was reading it this last week, and the story of all the messed up people got in it. Father, I'm thankful, God, that those people are in your family because it shows me, God, that just an ordinary person like myself, if I surrender my life to you, you can do some incredible things with. So, Father, I don't know all the stories of the people in this room. If they're stories like mine, or they lived a the perfect life. But, Father, I I'm thankful, God, that you use us. And I'm thankful, God, that you have a purpose for us. And Father, I want to I pray, Father, that you encourage the people in this room, God, that you show them that there is a reason that their heart beats inside their chest. But long ago, God, you created them and you have a purpose, Father, for them, a reason, God, that they exist. Father, I ask that you give them the courage to step into, Father, what you have for them. Lord God, we love you, we thank you. And in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen.